the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the book of Numbers. God had been preparing the Israelites to enter into the land promised to them, the land of Canaan. After many victories and failures, the next generation of Israel was ready. God laid out the boundaries of their new land before they went in to take it. God also gave instruction for the cities and suburban areas that would belong to the tribe of Levi. There were six cities built that were to be known as cities of refuge, places where people who may have killed another person accidentally and needed to escape an avenger of the fallen. These cities were to ensure that people received a fair trial before vengeance was taken upon them. We join Pastor Will back in Numbers chapter 35, verse 7. The rest of the cities would be normal ones. So verse 7, So all the cities you shall give to the Levites shall be forty and eight cities. Them shall you give with their suburbs. And the cities which ye shall give shall be of the possession of the children of Israel. From them that have many, you shall give many. So in other words, if you get a big chunk of land, you've got to give more cities to the Levites from the tribe that's smaller and doesn't get as much land. But from them that have few, you shall give few. Everyone shall give of his cities unto the Levites according to his inheritance, which he inherited. They would be spread out amongst all the people. And the reason that God did that was because, remember, he chose them. So their job is to teach, teach the Bible, you know, the, the law, to teach at that time, only the law, to teach that to the people and then to serve and assist in the tabernacle worship. That's what their job was. So they'd be spread out amongst all the people of Israel. While God had every intention of protecting the innocent from revenge killing, he was not offering a safe haven for murderers though. So he gives a deeper explanation of how these cities of refuge work. Verse nine. And the Lord spoke unto Moses saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When you become over Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall appoint you cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the slayer may flee thither, which kills any person, note, at unawares, which means inadvertently, unintentionally, accidentally. So if you did it on purpose, you can flee to the city of refuge, but you're going to die. You're going to get the death sentence. Verse 12, and they shall be unto you cities of refuge from the avenger. Okay, now the avenger is the family member who's supposed to take revenge. That the manslayer die not until he stand before the congregation in judgment, until he gets his trial, until he gets his day in court. Now, what's interesting about this word avenger, very interesting, because it's the word goel. Now, well, you say, what does that mean? Well, the Goel was the kinsman redeemer. We use the book of Ruth. It paints a picture of how Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, right? He became a man so that we could be redeemed, right? This same word is used here for the avenger. Just as Jesus fulfills our role of kinsman redeemer by purchasing our freedom from sin because he's our near kinsman, he also fulfills this role when he brings justice upon the wicked who oppress mankind. He's gonna be our redeemer in that way too, where he's gonna rescue us and this world from the mess it's in. Since 
these six cities were the only ones you could run to if this happened, they would need to be placed where people could actually get to them. Here we see in verse 13 that the Lord explains where these cities are supposed to be. He says, and of these cities, you shall give six cities shall you have for refuge. You shall give three cities on this side, Jordan. Verse 15, these six cities shall be a refuge both for the children of Israel, but note here, and for the stranger and for the sojourner among you. So if you have a foreigner living there or somebody's just passing through, these rules apply. It's not just for Israelis. So that everyone that kills any person unawares, accidentally, inadvertently, then they can flee there and be safe. God has the same rules they apply to everybody. This right is everyone's, whether you're an Israeli citizen or not. Be careful as a Christian what you support publicly. Be careful. Just because our nation does it doesn't mean it's right. And we see principles in God's word. Sometimes we don't treat anyone with the same rights we give to ourselves. And be careful if you're supporting that publicly because you're not representing the Lord when you do that. See, God is just to all because God is for all and he loves all. And his rules apply to everybody. What do we do then with somebody who killed somebody on purpose? Well, verse 16. If he, this is a guy who's running to the city, if he smite him with an instrument of iron, that's not like an iron guitar, that's like an implement like used in farming so that he die, Well, then he's a murderer, and the murderer shall surely be put to death. And if he smite him with throwing a stone, wherewith he may die, and he dies. You get mad, and you throw a rock at somebody, and you kill him, then, man, you're a murderer. And that murderer, it says, shall surely be put to death. They're like my kids. Today, we were driving down here, and I told them, I said, because they were bothering each other, whatever. And I'm like, guys, we have a rule. Keep your hands to yourself. It's just always that way. Anyway, I glanced in the mirror about five minutes later. I look back, and one of them's leaning over the other one like this, because the other one's not touching them getting them with the shoulder. So I was like, all right, you guys are grounded tomorrow. And they're like, and you know, the one says, but I just thought you said, don't use hands. Touching. Yeah, the Lord covers it. So if, if it's an implement of wood, weapon of wood, wherewith they may die and he dies, he's a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. And then it says the revenger of blood himself shall slay the murderer. When he meets him, he shall slay him. Now that's not when he catches up to him. God never, ever in this passage sanctions revenge killing. That's something we need to understand. People say, oh, so he allowed it. That means he sanctioned it. No, 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 no. The murderer still gets a fair trial. He gets a trial. But when it happens... The person who's the revenger, he's the one who deals with it after he's had his day in court. A couple times it does mention that it doesn't show intent always. It just means if he smite him by throwing a stone where he dies, or he smite him with a weapon of wood or of iron. Then in verse 20, it talks about, but if he thrust him out of hatred or hurl at him, in other words, by lying in wait, which means there was planning, he ambushed, there was malicious forethought. The idea is both a crime of passion where you lose control, you're angry and you lose control, or a situation where you plan out you're going to kill him. I think it's funny, this, the things God mentions here, it says, but if he thrust him of hatred. The word thrust means you shove him. Like, shove him where? I've shoved people and never killed him. I mean, I guess the idea here is shoving him off a cliff or something. Or if he hurl at him, that does not refer to vomit. The word hurl there actually means to throw something down. I guess if he's walking by and you drop a wagon on him or something, that's not good. Or if you're lying in wait, you're going to ambush him that he die. Or if in enmity, which means you just don't like him and you want to get rid of him. Verse 21. Or if in enmity smite him with his hand that he die, Here it is. He that smote him shall surely be put to death, for he is a murderer. The revenger of blood shall slay the murderer when he meets him. What I'm trying to get at is intent to kill isn't what makes you a murderer. If you intend harm, intend harm but not to kill, and you end up killing them because you lost control of your emotions, that's murder in God's eyes. 
That's interesting because our legal system separates those two, right? Murder one, murder two, manslaughter one, manslaughter two, I think. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know all that. But we do separate those things, but God doesn't. If it's not a murder of passion, but rather a calculated intent to kill, there's no safe harbor for that person. Either way, that person will have their day in court, but if they're found guilty, then they'll be put to death. What about deaths that happen this same way, but it was an accident? What if you killed somebody with an instrument of iron, but it's because you were trying to pull it out of the wagon and it flew out of your hand and hit the guy in the head and killed him? Does that apply? No. Verse 22. But if he thrust him suddenly without enmity, not because you didn't like the guy or anything, or have cast upon him anything without laying in wait, if your wagon comes loose on the hill and it rolls on top of him, that's a mistake. Or if with any stone wherewith a man may die, seeing him not. If you're, you're just chucking stones and you end up killing a guy, I guess it could happen. That was not his enemy, neither sought him his harm. Well, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the revenger of blood according to those judgments and according to all the standards God has set here in these verses. So what's interesting is he does have to face his accuser. It says, and the congregation shall deliver the slayer out of the hand of the revenger of blood. He does have to stand before his accuser. You don't get to get out of free there because you need to see the pain you caused by your carelessness or or whatever it might have been that caused this death. However, he does get his day in court. And if he's innocent, there's hope. For verse 25 says, and the congregation shall deliver, which means to rescue, save, or defend the slayer, the person who committed manslaughter, not murder here now, but manslaughter, out of the hand of the revenger of blood. He cannot take revenge on him. And the congregation, it says, shall restore him to the city of his refuge, whether he fled. They usually didn't have the court cases there in the cities of refuge, so he would have to leave to go to court. But if he's declared innocent, then they are going to ensure he gets safely back to the city of refuge. And then it says he shall abide in that, he has to stay in that city of refuge until the high priest dies the one who is anointed with the holy oil. You know, they can go back to the city of refuge they've been staying at. They can't go back to wherever their home was. You might be saying, why do they have to stay there? That sounds like almost like punishment. They did it by mistake. Yeah, but you know, accidental death is a byproduct of the fall as well. Just because we do horrible things by accident doesn't mean it's okay. That we do horrible things, even if by accident, shows our imperfections. And while the sin offering, remember the trespass offering covered things on purpose, they offered a sin offering every day. While that covered those things, our mistakes, our failures, it couldn't take the guilt away completely, nor could it take away the pain of the person who lost a loved one. Part of the problem of the old covenant lay in the offering. The Bible says that the blood of bulls and of bullocks can't take away sin. You know, it says that in fact, there's a reminder when that animal dies that your sins aren't taken away because what happens when you do it again? You gotta come back. So there's a reminder of the fact that your sins aren't washed away. Now, the blood of Christ is different, right? That can take away sins. So we don't have to go back and forth all the time. Our sins are washed. So we don't have to get born again again every time we sin. Part of the problem lay in the offering. But part of the problem also lay in the high priest. The only reason at all that the high priest could go in and make an offering for you is because of all the clothes he was wearing and the anointing oil that was upon him. If he went in there without that stuff, he'd be crispy crittered. So the good news is for us is that Jesus is our high priest, right? So when I bring my sins to him, my forgiveness is complete. You know, he never dies. He's not a sinner. My forgiveness is complete. Now, whenever the high priest died in the nation of Israel, it always signaled a fresh start to the nation. It was a reminder that there was a great high priest was going to come in the future who would take away their sin forever. A great high priest who would never die. Remember the promise in Psalms? I have made you a priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. The eternal. There is coming a priest who would do away with all this and fulfill all of it. And as a result, they would never have to do this anymore. 
When the high priest died, all those who were accused could go free. And in this case, this person, no revenge could be taken. But if they disobeyed the Lord and they left before the high priest died, the Lord says, you're on your own, buddy. Verse 26. But if the slayer, the one who committed manslaughter, shall at any time come without to go outside the border of the city of his refuge, whither he was fled. And if the revenger of blood finds him outside the borders of the city of his refuge and the revenger of the blood kill the slayer, he shall not be guilty of the blood. Again, God's not endorsing revenge killing. What he's saying here though, is that if this guy finds that guy out wandering around with the capacity to possibly hurt somebody else and he deals with them, the Lord says, that's your own fault. I'm not going to press charges against that guy because he, verse 28, should have remained in the city of his refuge until the death of the high priest. You've disobeyed the Lord. You've left that umbrella of protection. But after the death of the high priest, the slayer shall return into the land of his possession. Some might say, that really sounds unfair. They didn't mean to kill the person. Well, I've already described why God allowed certain things in the Old Testament, but this is probably a really good time to address a fallacy in our modern day thinking about God. It is easy to make the mistake of thinking that God owes me something, that my life is absolutely miserable because it's not the way I want it to be, that I can do harm to others, whether intentional or accidental, and just go back to my normal life. We would not function properly if we did that in our society. Where we do do that in our society, we are in a mess. God is just, which means he's the one who defines what justice is. And the moment I begin to question that, I am declaring not God is just, but I am just and am capable of defining what justice is. Well, let me ask you a question. Are any of us perfectly just in all that we do? We're not slanted in any way, in any way, shape, or form at all? I think it would take a very proud individual to say yes to that question. None of us are completely just, that has ramifications. Since none of us are perfectly just, it makes us incapable of deciding if he is or if he isn't. We are not capable of deciding that, which means critiquing God's justice is saying a whole lot more about who they think they are than who they think God is. When I hear people talk about, you know, well, I, I just don't think that's fair that God would send people to hell, or I don't think this law or this command that God, God gave is fair. I say that says way more about what you think about yourself than what you think about God. Way more because you think you're better than God in this area. You think you have the capacity to determine what is right and how things should be done better than God or anyone else. And I would challenge us, maybe if you felt that way before, or maybe if you've been tempted with that, you know, let's exercise a little humility when it comes to topics that we are not qualified to address definitively. We are not qualified to address what justice is definitively if we ignore what God says. If I just take this and throw it out and say, I'm going to determine what justice is, there's not a single person in this room or on this earth who can define that. We need to exercise a little humility anytime we're going to have a conversation about what is just, what is right, what is justice. We need to exercise a little bit of humility, a lot of humility. And part of that is saying, well, God is just. Has he ever spoken to us about what is just? And God has a lot to say about that. Verse 29, we see now, a few extra rules that are reminders for these trials that are had. And the first one is that convictions require at least two witnesses. Verse 29. So these things shall be for you for a statute of judgment unto you throughout your generations and wherever you live. This applies in every city. It says, whosoever kills any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses, plural. But one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. If it's only one person that's saying, oh, I know he hated him, or no, I, I saw it was with intent, that's not enough to get a conviction. God, again, he never sanctions revenge killing. Everyone is to get a fair trial, which means multiple witnesses must confirm a person's guilt to render capital punishment. Nothing is to be done rashly. 
The second rule that will govern is that nobody can pay their way out of this. Verse 31. Moreover, you shall take no satisfaction, the King James says. The word satisfaction means either ransom money or a bribe. So nobody can buy their way out of this, whether they bribe the judge or they just say, can I pay money to the person I I harmed, the family of the person I harmed to get out of this? Nope, you can't. You shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer, which is guilty of death, but he shall be surely put to death. But here's the other one. You shall also take no satisfaction for him that has fled to the city of his refuge. In other words, that wasn't guilty, was just accidentally done. He doesn't get to buy his way to go back home either, that he should come again to dwell in the land until the death of the priest. No one can pay their way out of it. Consequences are consequences. Basically, what God is saying, justice has to be done, even if it's accidentally it happens. And God explains how it's still just for the unintentional killer to experience a punishment. Look at verse 33. He says, so you shall not pollute the land wherein you are. For blood, bloodshed, it defiles the land. It's a principle. Bloodshed defiles this land. And the land cannot be cleansed of the bloodshed, blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. Do not defile, therefore, the land which you shall inhabit. There has to be justice. There has to be a punishment. And why is it? Because the Lord says, I dwell there. For I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. See, God's presence dwelt in the midst of his people. This land wasn't like any other land. So they couldn't pollute it. The word pollute means to profane, to make something godless, to make it normal. Israel's land wasn't going to be normal. God's presence would be there. And bloodshed in any kind, accidental or on purpose, wasn't a part of God's creation, nor will it have any part in heaven. So if bloodshed was allowed without justice, without consequences, then guess what? You want to live that way? I can't stay there. He says, unpunished violence in the land, I will have to deal with you. In Habakkuk chapter one, you can read it on your own time. The Lord talks about how Habakkuk's crying out, going and saying, Lord, there's violence in the land. I mean, isn't that something that relates to us today? There's violence in our land. Well, if we don't deal with it, you know what's gonna happen? God has to deal with us. He tells the nation, he goes, if you don't deal with it, I will have to deal with you. The Lord told Habakkuk, he says, when are you going to do something, Lord? He goes, I'm going to do something so crazy that if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. And he prophesies centuries before Babylon comes to judge Judah that they will come and destroy the land. Now, before we close out numbers, we've got one last inheritance problem to deal with. Remember those daughters of Zelophehad, whose father had died and he had no sons and they were worried that they would get no inheritance and their father's place in, in the land, they wouldn't get any? Well, remember the Lord ruled and said, no, 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 if there's no sons, then the daughters inherit it, elevating the place of women. Well, some of the guys were thinking and they're concerned about a loophole in God's ruling. And so we have chapter 36. And the chief fathers of the families of the children of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh. So these are the guys living way up here, the half tribe. They came near and they spoke before Moses and before the princes, the chief fathers of all the children of Israel. So they came to the leaders of the nation and they said, hey, the Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for an inheritance by lot to the children of Israel. And my Lord was commanded, Moses, you were commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, unto his daughters. I love these guys because they come with humility and submission. They're like, hey, We know the Lord rendered a judgment and we are cool with that. Like, we don't want to be rebels here. We know that the Lord commanded you to give this judgment to us. We understand that. However, we have a concern. Verse three, if these girls be married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the children of Israel, well, then their inheritance, their dad's inheritance, Zelophehad, it shall be taken from our fathers. The land that's supposed to come to us and our tribe will be taken from 
us and shall be put whereunto they are received, to the other tribe. They'll gain land that's not supposed to be theirs. And so it shall be taken from the lot of our inheritance. And they say, we know the Jubilee laws, they won't cover it either. For when the Jubilee of the children of Israel is every 50 years, then shall that inheritance be put under the inheritance of the tribe whereunto they are received. So shall their inheritance be taken away from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. Basically what they're saying is if these gals marry some guy from another tribe, then everything you set up that the inheritance would stay in the family will be lost. We don't think that's a, that's a good thing to do. And so look what Moses says. And Moses commanded, verse 5, the children of Israel, according to the word of the Lord. So this is God's judgment, saying... The tribe of the sons of Joseph has said well. I love that. The Lord says they're right. They have spoken justly and honestly. But it's almost like the Lord says, this is an easy answer. It's why it's a short chapter. He says, this is the thing which the Lord does command, verse 6, concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, let them marry to whom they think best. Only to the family of the tribe of their fathers shall they marry. So shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel remove from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep himself to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter, so now it's not just the daughters of Zephah, this applies for all Israel's history. Every daughter that gets the inheritance from her father, if there's no boys, in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be wife unto one of the family of the tribe of her father, so that the children of Israel may enjoy every man the inheritance of his fathers. And neither shall the inheritance remove from one tribe to another tribe, but every one of the tribes of the children of Israel shall keep himself to his own inheritance. So single ladies, I love it here that it says they can marry whoever they think is best. So can I give you a word of advice? I don't know if we have any single women here tonight, but never settle, never settle. You are God's princess. And while no man is perfect, don't settle for one that's not gonna love you like Jesus does, okay? Now, they did have one exception. The exception for the women in this situation is they have to pick from their pool of prospective bachelors from their own tribe, all right? So if you see a hottie over in Reuben and you're an Asher, sorry, lady, you can't do it. He might be the nicest guy in the West, but you can't, you can't pursue him, okay? You've got to marry in tribe so that because the, the inheritance is very important that it stays with the family. And you know what? These ladies were perfectly fine with that setup. Look at verse 10. Even as the Lord commanded Moses, so did the daughters of Zelephahad. For Mela, Terza, Hagla, Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Zelephahad, they were married unto their father's brother's sons. And they were married unto the families of the sons of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And so their inheritance remained in the tribe of the family of their father. Everyone's happy. No loopholes. Isn't it awesome when we read that Israel did what God told them to? Do you know... That's the same way that people feel when they see you doing what the Lord says. Like if you're a parent and you see your child do the right thing or if you have a friend and they're facing with a hard decision and they trust the Lord and they do what's right, isn't that a cool moment? But it also works the opposite side. It's a heartbreaking moment when people who love you see you do something that's sin, that's wrong. You know, sin always affects more than just you. Remember that when you're making your decisions. Well, verse 13, we come to the end of our journey. These are the commandments and the judgments which the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses unto the children of Israel in the plains of Moab by Jordan near Jericho. The end. That was my, I added that. It doesn't say the end. Not inspired. Number starts with a parade and it ends with anticipation. We're about to go in. There was a lot in between though that wasn't pretty, right? A lot of bumps along the way. But what's so cool is that God's grace still moved him forward. And maybe your journey with Jesus has had a lot of bumps along the way. Can I give you an encouraging thought? You're still here. You're not done yet, and God's not done yet. God has wonderful blessings for you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to fail you, even though you have failed him. I mean, that's what it says here. That's what he did with them. So here's my closing for numbers. 
let's not stay in the wilderness. Let's not get right up to the edge of the land, that abundant life, but fail to go in. Let's keep journeying with Jesus, amen? Let's live within the boundaries that God has given to us so we can experience the abundant life that he promised. Let's all stand. Oh, Lord, (laughs) I pray that this study from the book of Numbers will stay in our hearts, that we would not forget the truths that we've learned, that as we watch the journeys of Israel with you way back in history, that we would see your hand of grace leading us and covering us in our history. Lord, we want to live within the boundaries you set for us. You end that book by saying, these are the commands, these are the judgments, these are the statutes. Lord, you've given us statutes and commands and we we want to live within them, not to get saved, Lord, but because we just love you and you've washed us clean and we're already saved. So Lord, would you take now our surrender? Would you take now our commitment to live within the boundaries you've set? And will you bless us, Lord? For those of us, Lord, who've had a bumpy journey or maybe just you know, a bumpy journey recently, Lord, as we recommit our lives to you just to enter into all you have for us, to go over the Jordan and to start fighting the battles against the giants. Lord, would you show us your goodness and strengthen our hand for the fight. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. When we put our whole trust in God's promises and trust him for who he says he is, we will see him move in mighty ways. God is merciful. Even when we fail and falter, we cannot thwart God's promises, nor make ourselves so useless that God can't use us for His purposes. All we must do is trust Him, repent from whatever sin we might be holding on to, and walk with Him. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.